random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hey, I'm Brian Haberlin. And this is Will Spartacio. And we're on The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Yeah. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm the Honorable P. Oh, wait, no, we're no longer doing Shulk. Oh, jeez, Louise Simonson. No. Anyway. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And joining us on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with Brian Haberlin and Wils Portasio. Gentlemen, good evening. Good, well, good day for us. Thank We're you. We're on the West Coast. <laughs> Thank you. Good answer. All he says sunshine. It, good deal. So first off, let's get it right off the bat. X-Men Legends, congratulations on your involvement in the series that is coming up very soon from the House of Ideas, Marvel Comics. Well, thank you. And Thank you. Yeah. How did it come about? How did uh, who contacted who? What? 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 What's? What's the whole thing going on here? Who answers first? Maybe <laughs> will. Well, um, you know, editorial um, called up, and and you know, through the years they call up, but um, I'm such an old fogey now. I mean, it's what what thirty years ago or something like that, mm. and so it's like. Uh, there's not much that I've been able to, I, I can be, you know, seriously write or, or think about, you know, um, and Bishop is the only thing. And so when the suggestion was, you got any other stories of Bishop, then, you know, that was a natural. And then, um, you know, because I'm a lazy writer, um, I go, Brian, my best friend, hey. Come, come on board for the madness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, Wilson and I, have, we've, you know, we've both done tons of stuff at Marvel, but we've never done anything together at Marvel. So this was the first time for that. And yeah, which is actually kind of interesting because um, traditionally, quote unquote, the the traditional Marvel way is, you know, uh, the writer and the artist talk about the story. Then the writer goes out and writes it, and then the artist draws whatever is there, and then the scripter comes in and scripts whatever he can script on over that. And that's how me and Brian have always worked with everything. We actually have a really great shorthand, so we have a Marvel shorthand, but never worked with Marvel before. <laughs> well, I, I dare say that even before all that started, you guys may have met in the men's room, right? <laughs> We we actually met at the beginning days of Image. Back when Top Cow and cause I started in '93, and uh, and uh, Top Cow and Wildstorm and Wilts were all in one studio, Amish Studios, is what they called it, back in Mira Mesa, San Diego, um, and uh, and that's where we met each other. That became friends. Yeah, we were both, we're, we're the both geeks. computer geeks. Yeah. I was the geek on the Wildstorm side. He was the geek on the Popcow side. Yeah. 
And when it comes yeah, to... Yeah, I knew, I knew we'd be best friends when he pulled out his... Uh, his uh, um, um, old Amiga rent 3D rendering of a, of a uh, squadron of spaceships. <laughs> Wills, do you still have that by any chance? <laughs> Both that and the Amiga. <laughs> I wish I had the Amiga because um, it had the... Uh, I bought one of the first posters, which was a, basically an AB editing broadcast system, analog, but embedded on the card was the first version of Lightwave. Oh, wow. So that's how come I got into 3D. And what's your favorite thing about doing 3D, 3D uh, modeling and stuff like that? It's it's just really cool that, um, you know, I mean, because I don't relate it to, quote, unquote, what I do as an artist. Um, I saw from the very beginning there that, Oh wow! If you build a model right, like for instance, you know, uh, a magneto gun or something like that, you could see it from all angles. And that's actually one of the biggest skills being an artist is being able to see everything from different angles. Because I mean, let's be frank, you know, throwing a punch is basically there's only maybe two or three different ways to do that, but everybody then just puts it in a different angle you know right you have the jack kirby angle you have the neil adams angle and and so on and so on it's the same punch it's the same superman flying through the air you know but it's just the artist's personal touch with the angle of the camera and so getting into 3d was like oh wow i can see the future here and that's what i love about computers and by the way, yeah, and, and it's kind of so exciting now, you know, because I've been a 3D model or two since the 80s. Um, you know, now I have all these 3D printers, so I can actually, you know, sculpt something digitally and print it out, and I got a physical sculpt in my hand. You know. And by the way, Will, yeah. you you had mentioned. Uh, let's be frank. We may have to redo the intros again then, just to be safe. No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the other thing about 3D. You just move the bits around a bit, and then, you know, you don't have to redo it. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot it from a different angle, you know, all that kind of stuff. There you go. And I feel like that's one of the most important things to be a creator in the realm of comics. You know, be well-versed in as many different skills as humanly possible. And what else do you feel are some, you know, aspiring creators out there, what are some, like, things they should have in their back pocket just to be safe? Well, I, I definitely always push for 3D, um, you know, because the, the one thing about the 3D, too, is, is you know, because you're still going to start with pencil and paper. You always are. If you jump into the 3D world and start trying to do all this sculpting stuff, there's just too many options. You need a map, and that's where your layouts and, and sketch design are for, because otherwise you'll just waste huge amounts of time. Uh, and But once you get that, that stuff going that way with 3D, you can do your layouts, and especially for a young artist, you can have the panel now, it's in 3D, right? And he had it shot from this really kind of, which most beginning artists do, it's all eye level, it's all straight on shots, right? There's, there's no real great perspective or anything. In 3D, he can, they can now take that camera and move it, change the focal length. Oh, maybe it's better from the side, maybe it's better from the top, maybe it's better at a Dutch angle, you know? And you can see that all interactively with the 3D now, which really kind of helps an artist get out of out of their own way to a certain degree and also enables them to to get out of what would be standard 
what they're just stuck in even you know maybe they just always do a shot like this all the time you know what i mean yeah you know um Brian and I come from the same school where it's all context. You know, you could you could buy the most expensive computer and it could do ultra everything or whatever you want. But like Brian says, if you don't have an idea, you're just spinning your wheels. So what I mean by context is you got to understand these are just tools. So this is what I'm doing. I'm making comics. I'm storytelling. How can this help me do that faster, more efficiently? Not, oh, wow, hey, I got this big expensive thing now, and I've got to make it cost worth something. You know, you, you just deal with whatever you have. Because Ryan and I come from the time where, you know, before cell phones, before computers, even though we were the first ones into computers, you know, we had to do everything by ourselves, you know, just because we wanted to. Like like Brian, explain how, okay, when I, I went, in the 90s, I went back to the Philippines and I set up a studio there. Now, this is the days of dial-up. Now, how the hell are you going to transfer, <laughs> you know, megabytes of data for each page and not be there at the phone waiting for it forever? Brian came up with a brilliant idea. Right, Brian? What was it? God, I don't know. What? <laughs> Remember splitting up the file? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Guys, splits and joins. Oh, God. Uh, that's almost more <laughs> trouble than it was worth. But I still, I, like I said, I do still miss the uh, the BOD modem noises. Boing, 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 boing. <laughs> you know. But they're ingrained in your mind, so that's what we hear now. I wasn't sure if back then there was even a megabyte. Yeah, no, it was still, we were probably 14 fours when we first started, then 28 eights. Um, and, uh, and it's funny because I have, you know, I have my normal business email. It's my anomaly productions thing, but I still have my old AOL because back in the day, you know, there was no internet, but you could get on AOL via dial up and still transfer files wherever in the world. Yeah, and, and when I went to the Philippines, I was just lucky enough to, uh, the first week I was there, actually, no, the house that I was renting at the time, uh, the owner's kid, who, who became a publisher, him and his brother were opening up the first, um, uh, 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 what do you call it, you know, of service. And so they gave me a free, you know, they gave me free email. Um, that I could use at any time before anybody else really had to. And so yeah, we had the the room to experiment. And so since, you know, it was so slow, the the solution that Brian came up was, well, if you take the file, the Photoshop file, and you split out the color um, layers of it, it it's not that um, high res. It's not that big. It's actually just a couple hundred K. And since you're not worried about the edges being, you know, high def, you could even reduce that down. You can JPEG it down. And then he figured out, take the line work, which you need high res, but if you convert it to a bitmap, it'll become weird looking data. And it's only a couple hundred megabytes, I mean, uh, kilobytes. But then Brian, I could receive it in California and trans and and um, and convert it back 
you know, to the original file with all the fidelity, and then he has to put it all together. So, so he's right. He has to do all the work, and you know, I just, I just draw. <laughs> How much do you guys miss floppy disks? Oh, uh, you know, I just the other day I, I I had a flashback of that. It wasn't quite a floppy disk. I had Greg Capullo is going to be putting out his old Creech comic that he did in the late '90s. And he couldn't figure out how to get files off zip disks oh, on his Mac. And so Greg sent me all the zip disks and a zip, zip thing. And it was like a flashback to the old days, you know, because even like what Wills was saying, the files were encapsulated postscripts. So they were CMYK separate files with an EPS header that you have to know to be able to put all that stuff together. And I don't think anyone younger than 30 or 40 would even know what to do with that stuff. Mm. And it's funny because, like, I'll see all, like, the little adapters, and even then, sometimes the adapters don't even work, you know, well enough to be able to convert those things oh, and, to what and, they are now. and there's so much missing stuff, too, from, from those days. I, I know that most of the original, like, Top Cow files don't exist anymore because we put them on tape drives, and we didn't know the tape drives didn't last, you know? Mm. And then you look at, you know, even, like, you know, home media formats like VHS where that is slowly disintegrating, and it's... I feel like the cloud is the future, but it may not be because you never know. That might even become obsolete in like you know a few years. Well, again, well, it could be hijacked and 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 just disappear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still it's just a hard drive somewhere else. You know, I mean, it's, 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 too bad it's not really in the cloud in some way, shape, or form. Um, and shit happens, you know. Wills, is this why Bri- is this why Bishop came from the future? Is this the real reason? <laughs> Yeah, you know, back in the day, especially, it was like, you know, I got, like the day I got my toaster Amiga, I go, the the present day is too slow for me. (laughs) So now let's, let's get back on topic with Bishop. With this, so what is it like with the whole process of the scripter and writer element? Uh, I mean, scripter and plotter element of this kind of story because I love seeing this. And are there other like moments like where the script will be like, "Hey, you should do this," and it's like, "Oh shit, you're right. That's a good idea. Let's throw that in there too." Oh sure, that always happens with us. Um, but you know, but I mean, it all started with just like the basic concept that that will you know agree to to Marvel, and then we we just start getting on the phone and hash it out, you know. You know, one one thing everybody has to realize is that, you know, with all the entertainment fields, we have the worst deadlines. You know, we have four weeks. You know, and in four weeks, Brian and I have to screenplay it. We have to screen doctor it. We have to design the locations. We have to design the characters, design the costumes, do the sequencing, the storyboarding, the key art, all in four weeks. So there's not, an, there's not that much time to nitpick and go through. So what we're really paid for is in the very beginning of everything, that first like week or two, Brian and I talking – but because Brian and I think the same way in terms of story and what a story needs, we don't have to implicitly say everything. We trust that the other person knows, oh, I said this, but I'm not going to waste a few seconds by saying, oh, well, that means you got to do this and do this and do this. 
I know Brian knows that. And then he'll put that in the plot. And so when I get the plot, there'll be a lot of little details that, you know, that weren't explicitly um, talked about. And then on the other hand, Brian then trusts me that, okay, he set this one scene here. Um, and I go, okay, well, visually, um, that means shouldn't there be like two guards over here? And shouldn't there, that mean there be like um, peasants over here? But they'd be having the heads bowed and they'd be way over to the side. You know, he he relies on me to put in all the visual details. And so that's what a really good creative team is. On the writing side, I have to trust Brian to do everything that needs to be in terms of writing. And then he has to trust me to do everything that I need to do visually. Because once I'm done, it's got to go out. You know, there's there's very little time to go, well, what about this or what about that? Yeah, that might be good, but, you know, we're paid the bucks to get as much as perfect as we can and then just go on. You just got to keep going forward. Yeah. Well, guys, I mean, mean, that's what like a lot of big movies that that everybody anticipates and it fails. Well, nine times out of ten is because people were nitpicking at it. You know, they didn't go with their guts. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier... Pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. What, gentlemen, if I can, starting with Wils, have you remember back to when you first got into comics? I, I have some information. Wils, you started at the age of 10. Uh, what comics <laughs> were they? Because it says your neighbor got rid of her husband's collection. And, and do you remember who those people were? You don't have to name names. I was, I've always been knock on wood lucky in my life. And that was one of the first big lucky strokes. This guy, this Navy dude, was not just somebody who liked comics. It turns out he was a collector because there was um, uh, the giant side defenders with Klaus Jensen and I think Gil Kane or somebody. And then there was these Neil Adams. There were these Jim Colin Conans. There was um, a couple issues of Jack Kirby's, you know, 100-issue run in um, the Netherworld was the Fantastic Four. Had some old Jack Kirby's of Thor. So it was everything that, it was what sparked my brain and my artist um, side of me. I didn't have to go to another store or out or supplement the collection. It was all of the greats and all of, and all their prime. 
And so I just had to took that stack of comics, which was maybe 40 comics only. But boom, I, I, I just just leapfrogged from there. You know, and then only then later, that was in grade school. Um, later on, when I met Scott Williams in high school, and Scott was a bona fide real art collector. I mean, he had uh, Barry Windsor Smiths and Kaludas. And so I got to see in high school what real art looked like. And then again, boom, leapfrog again from there. And Brian, for you, where it started? Um, you know, uh, again, I was, when you're around our age, you know, if you wanted to do superheroes and fantasy and stuff, the only places to really do it would have been, you know, uh, paperback book covers or comics because the film industry wasn't, you know, doing much of that stuff and everything. So comics is where I kind of settled in and, and I had my version of what Wills had. There was a little, uh, uh, bookstore in in hollywood that uh, had boxes of almost every comic ever done not bagged and bored you could just flip through them and by the time i was 16 i could tell every inker apart i could tell every penciler apart you know and uh and and that was just really just my master's class in in starting to do it and I had my first job offer to go pencil at Marvel when I was 18, and I didn't take it because it was like it was actually probably to be a Romita Ranger. Ranger instead, it was it was John Romita Senior and 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 Jim Shooter, uh, who said, "Yeah, because you got to then go out to New York," and uh, they uh, said it would be about thirty-five dollars a page, and they wouldn't guarantee you work, and so I went to film school instead. <laughs> <laughs> And then eventually working at, I, I then worked at uh, Lorimar Television and Warner Brothers, but I always wanted to do comics, and I kept working on this new digital stuff and taking my portfolio down to San Diego Comic-Con, getting rejected like everybody else. And then one year, a friend of mine had a small press booth, and he said, you want to join me? And I had a CRT monitor that was deeper than it was wide, probably weighed 150 pounds, and I had a 3D-modeled animated spawn on that, and I had this huge inkjet green lantern with a 3 d model power battery, full digital color, and everybody and their mother came by and offered me work. And Sylvester basically said, don't talk to anybody else. <laughs> the 3D-model spawn, how many chains were on it? Uh, he probably had the two with the belt, and uh, then he'd have the links would probably be about 40 each. Because I don't know if you know this, kids love chains. They just love them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Todd loves chains, too. <laughs> yeah, that was that from the get-go. You're get also going. speaking to two, two, two spawn artists here. That, right? Very true, very true. And as someone who's been hunting down spawn books, I actually got to see uh, Todd at New York Comic Con, and I told him point blank, I love spawn. My wallet hates you for the back issue catalog of how expensive they can be <laughs> after a while. <laughs> but... What is it like seeing a character like Bishop have such a long-lasting effect on, you know, on the pop culture psyche, especially in Marvel Comics, to the point where people inundate a certain member of, uh, I believe, the uh, Wu-Tang Clan over and over and over to play Bishop? You know, um, I earlier said that we, we have the most crushing deadlines, and it, that's true. Um, you know, Brian and I 
okay, you know, a visual visit, you know, like ILM or um, or the game shops and stuff like that. And they're full of art directors that wish they were comic artists or comic writers, but the deadlines were just too too crazy. And um, that it, it is crazy. It is grueling. It is almost like slave work, but we love it, so we do it. And that is the payback, because um, I, what I'm talking about is I could I could tell you for sure, for, I could be honest and say that the the schedule and everything was so hectic back then. And then, and then you got to remember, very real soon, image happened, and, and that was even like ten times the you know the busy. Um, but my point is that we were so into just doing the deadline and being able to create um, things that we were just in our heads. You know, we're just honored to be able to get paid to do it. That in the day, being an X-Men artist, we never actually had long conscious thoughts of, hey, the X-Men is like a great societal metaphor for inclusivity. You know, we just unconsciously tapped into that. You know, when I did those those store covers that I'm known for, I did that because Susan Gaffney, the, the X-Men editor at the time, suggested, oh, wow, maybe we could have him do a kiss. And I go, oh, that might be kind of cool. Nobody's done that. And I'm always trying to one-up myself. And so I just did that. And I try to give it as much of the old romantic fervor that I, I, I felt from, I'm a big movie buff, so from watching all the big movies and stuff. But now I am, I, I don't know if honored is the right word, but it's very gratifying to go to conventions and the LGBT community comes up to me and said, you know, I saw that cover and it just said so much to me. And well, my point there is that I didn't originally intend it for that, but all real good art is interpretable, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it lasts. That's how good art lasts through the seasons and well, through the years, through the decades. Is that, is it not, if it, it's not one, only one truth. It is a truth at the time, but it can be interpreted because the truth that you're addressing is a basic truth of, of, of you know, human society. And so, yeah, the, um, just overall, my, my run on the X-Men, it was great to be able to, quote-unquote, climb the ladder you know, uh, learn my ropes, um, give my dues, and then to get this feedback, you know, and validation. And let's face it, that's what every creative wants. You know, every creative wants to be noticed. And I also like, you said a little while ago, the whole concept of being in competition with yourself. I like hearing that because it's always, you know, the whole thing of you want to go against your peers and all that stuff, but it's nice to see someone that wants to, you know, outdo themselves and you know you're your own competition it's kind of cool to hear that well see um uh, 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 that came from my high school art teacher um 
uh, not to go through all the details, but I actually was basically tutored by my art teachers since grade school. So by the time I got to high school, my art teacher there was connected to the whole art college community. And so he had in my first freshman year, he had my whole path laid out. And this is a fine art path. He had it all laid out. And then my dad, who was in the U.S. Navy, retired in my uh, sophomore year. And he wanted to bring us back to the Philippines. And I've never been to the Philippines. All I knew was, my path is set. I'm going to be this great artist. Um, and uh, I went to my art teacher and go, dude, you got to help me. My, my life is going to stop. And he said, well, go to the Philippines and you might learn something about different societies or other things. You might meet other artists in different fields and learn something. Because, and this was the thing, he said, the moment that an artist thinks he's learned it all, that's the moment that artist dies. Because an artist and, like, and a creative, we study life. We study the world. And if you think you, today you know everything, well, what's going to happen next year? What's going to happen in five years? You know, society is just astronomically growing right now. And we're going through massive social problems that we could not have envisioned. And so if you're, if you're, if you're stuck and stopped your creative mind, you're not going to be able to address all that stuff. You're not going to be able to go into that, you know? So improving yourself really for me is looking for the next thing I've, uh, you know, I, I don't know, you know, and if I think if I get into a thing where I know everything, and there's nothing else to learn. Uh oh, I got to stand up and and try to find something new. And again, that level of always wanting to learn—that's the best thing. That's honestly the best advice for an aspiring creator. You always, you know, when you always want to learn because you never know what new information you could, you know, process as a result of that. Yeah, you know, like in my um, in my talks, uh, one of the things that I point out is that Brian and I are uh, quote-unquote superhero creatives. Now, we can't write effective stories and create effective characters if we don't know human um, emotions, human society, human psyche. Because think about it. We're, we're writing stories of fantastic situations that probably never will happen about superhero people that probably never will exist. But again, now look at the whole world. The whole world believes in superheroes. The only way we were able to do that is by understanding all of the little universal stories that come with just being a human being and living. We take all those stories, mash them together, and then they equal Iron Man. They equal the Hulk. If we didn't do that, it would just be gobbledygook to everybody. 
So, well, the, and so that's, that's even the, the the base for for where all this stuff started with Stan, because Stan was the first one to really like, oh, they're gonna have jobs, yeah. they're gonna have lives, they're gonna have families they have to worry about, they're gonna have dysfunctional families they have to worry about. You know, that's what I always think gave Marvel kind of a heads up. I was always more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, you know, um, because you could relate. You know, yeah, and, and that's the key I think to what's happening um, with superheroes right now. Because Brian and I have been there where, you know, we wish there was a movie. We wish there was a TV show. We wish somebody would, you know, adult would read our comic book. And now the whole world is. Well, as I see, you had one occasion to be part of the um, documentary series, The Comic Book Greats, and you were interviewed by Stan Lee. How did you feel about that? Uh, That was... um, that was an honor, but um, the circumstances for how it came out were, were you know, kind of weird. Um, at that time, every December, I went back to the Philippines for a month. And um, when I got back, the day I got back, Jim calls me up and says, hey, a limousine's going to go pick us up and we're going to do this thing in Burbank. Well, we didn't get to that studio until like one thirty in the morning, <laughs> and there was poor Stan sitting there, and he had to do forty-five minutes with everybody because the whole gang was there. And so I, I, I don't know if you guys remember, but there's that scene where Stan is falling asleep, and then we come in and wake him up. Well, that's a recreation of what actually happened. Because we went on to like 4.30 in the morning. So it was exhilarating. It was an honor. And and, and Stan carried us all because we were just kids. You know, but um, I wish I was more awake. <laughs> and it's funny because like around that time, this is, you know, the buildup to uh, 1992, the formation of Image Comics. And this year marks the 30th anniversary and. What is it like seeing the impact, you know, for creators like yourselves to be able to have that, you know, creator rights and all that good stuff for the comics community? It's um, I mean, image is, is it's really gratifying you know, because I mean, you go ahead. You're 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 you were for, there before me, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll just give a short thing um, because I've thought about this and it, it, it it's really gratifying because if, Brian, you probably remember at the time. Everybody thought we were just going to flop, that it was either going to be three months or three years, and that's it. Um, even Actually, I remember all of the guys in a limousine once going up to Hollywood, and Jim asked the question, so how long were we going to last? And everybody, believe it or not, agreed three years. And to, to find out that just like in our starting our careers at the X-Men, we were tapping into an audience that was waiting for something that we could give. So it's really then gratifying to finding out that um, image really tapped into something the real collective um, uh, community wanted. Uh, Brian? Yeah, I mean, and for me, you know, it's like, you know, when I joined Top Cow, it was basically we could all fit in the car together. That's how many people were Top Cow. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Mark was, you know, Mark. The two the two best teachers I've ever had in comics were, were and not to say I totally when Mike Turner came up Mike ate up Wilson's lay, layouts 
so not disparaging Wills in any way, but Todd and Mark, you know, I've had a master's class yeah. in, in art creation from those guys and storytelling from those guys too. Um, but it was the, that, that ability, especially in the beginning of it was, you know, I wasn't fast. I mean, a regular, a standard comic book colorist has to be able to do at least two to three pages a day, at least. Okay. And quite often they get asked to do more. Um, and I, when, when no one's fast when they first started and when I first started, it would take me two days to do a page, you know, and Mark was like, when it's ready, you know, keep at it, keep working on it. And that was, that was a wonderful uh, way to learn. But it was also wonderful to be in that place with, you know, you had Jim was there, Scott Williams was there, Wilkes was there, Mark was there, and all the new kids that really hadn't done anything yet, Jeff Campbell, Travis Cheris, David Finch, Joe Benitez, Brandon Peterson, all these guys who are still A players in the game, you know? And it's just, and it's amazing that you just, you get also then, it became about, everybody's job was about making the product better and beating, and it was very competitive. And it was beating the other guy. I mean, there used to be all these kind of faxes flying back and forth from the different other studios, like Extreme and stuff, you know, Rob's studio and stuff. Oh, this is better. We got more characters in this panel than you have in that panel and da-da-da-da-da and stuff. But it really drove people. Yeah, one of our best decisions was to form the studios. I mean, think about all those guys, you know, um, Jim, Todd, and I, and then, you know, the Campbell-level um, group and Travis and stuff, think of all of us alone in our own studios. We probably still would have risen to where we are, but it would have taken maybe a year, two, three years. But to mash all these guys together, uh, you just accelerate everything. Now going back over to Bishop with the uh, X-Men Legends storyline that's going to be coming out what do you think that the what do you think the audience that loves bishop and loves the character will be getting the most out of this uh this uh mini series kind of thing ish well from column a well, it, column B. It, it's <laughs> almost like the director's cut because um let me give some context um you guys remember that Jim and I were in the X office when it was going crazy. Uh, when we got into the office, we were already at a solid 300, 400,000 copies a month. And then we got up into a million. And then everybody started noticing, started doing CNN reports and, and you know, going crazy. And then so Bob Harris the executive editor for the X-Men had the idea of why don't we have two artists on the X-Books and therefore have two X-Books with two teams of X-Men. And so that's how that idea came about. So here I am on issue 281 where I'm introducing my team and my part of the new world, which needs to X-Men strike team. I get halfway through my first issue and I get a call from Bob in New York saying, 
hey, Will, you got two weeks to create a new X-Men. Boom, phone drop. And so while I'm finishing up 281 with Carl Onsaller, I'm figuring out this new thing called Bishop. And because I come from a science fiction background, which is all world building, I don't just create, hey, Bishop is a cool name, and this is a cool power. No, I build this whole world. And that's why we had to plant it into Days of Future Past, because that's the only way it made sense. And so my point there is, now we're getting to, to, to uh, issue 282, which is my second issue of this start of this big run. We haven't yet fully established the, the context in the world of having two excellent strike teams. And now I've got to introduce this big new world and story with Bishop. And Bishop starts. So if you really look back there, we had the ping pong back and forth between storylines. So it was actually more than a couple issues before we actually got to some of the guts and detail of uh, Bishop's uh, storyline. Um, we almost had nothing about Days of Future Past except a mention of it. Um, and then image happens. And so there are a lot of little holes, a lot of things that we never really got into um, uh, before I, quote-unquote, gallivanted on over the, the image. So this is actually um, Brian and I giving full context, full texture to the pool. What is the pool? Why was the pool there? Uh, why is Bishop there? Bishop's a mutant. Why, why is he hunting other mutants? How does he feel about that? What led him to there? You know, um, I, I purposely designed Malcolm and Randall just as um, uh, uh, clone characters of Bishop so that they could die for Bishop. Because that's what Bob asked for. Just make this new character badass like Wolverine. So I didn't want him to get up there and say, Hi, I'm Bishop and I'm badass like you. So I thought of the, the writing thing of, well, introduce two guys close to him. And they're so close to him that they will, they're willing to die for him. So in the original run, we only had that initial scene. But no context for it. Why would these guys die for him? You know, and, and why would they die from in this past? Did they know they were in the past? And so that's what we explore. We, we take a lot more time um, in uh, Days of Future Past to show the events and the circumstance that led to um, Bishop coming into our present. And Bryant is one of the best people to to do that because he's he's much he he manages ideas and keeps me on the narrow on the straight track um, uh, better than anybody else because as Brian Brian could tell you my my mind goes a mile a minute ideas just popping out everywhere and he just makes makes it make sense.
Yeah, so I could say who I am. He could say who he is. And we got good product out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I mean, we really are doing two issues on what was only kind of like, God, it was like almost like a two, three pages, you know, in the, the, the book. We're filling, filling in the details of, of why this happened and stuff, you know, because I, I, didn't, I, I didn't read those books back in the day, and I got them all, the books around it to read before we started this. You know, of course, Will's filling me in on things, but, uh, but it was just, it's, we're really, you know, kind of going behind the scenes and showing you this is, you know, the only thing that just all of a sudden happened in the book and there was kind of just happened. Well, here's the reasons why it happened. You know, here's the backstory, you know. And just before we totally leave that uh, beginning part of Bishop Wilts, your relationship with uh, John Byrne in creating this character. Um, you know, I have to admit that both John and Chris, I actually didn't spend very any uh, time. Um, everything was just happening so fast um, that, you know, because cause when we got onto the X books, we got on an Xbox because of the stature we were already building from Punisher. So it was all right. Who here's his two young guys getting into getting their big shot because everybody wanted that X Men slot. We get in there and then right away create create your own character. Oh wow! And and I do it and and then the boss likes it and and we do that and then the audience starts to like it. And then now we've got to fill out all these holes. And then, you know, oh, um, the boys recording me the join-up image and stuff. And that's when started everything. You know, even when we were in the Xbox, we were getting interviews with CNN and everything. And so it was going way beyond everything. So my point there is that in a typical um, situation, we'd just be drawing. And then I'll pick up the phone or John will pick up the phone and give me a call and we'd have long conversations. But uh-uh, there was no time. It was exactly the old Marvel method. You know, um, we would get on the phone for 30 minutes with, with Bob Harris. Jim and I would just quickly throw out big blocks of a story that we wanted to do, and Bob would say, uh, no, this is good, but uh, change the perspective here. It's, it's, it's not Colossus, it's, it's, his, it's his brother, Mikel. And then uh, go for that. And then we just go. And then we just do it. And then um, Bob sends my uh, pencils over the John. And then, again, old Marvel way, John just takes it, and tries to make sense of it. And then it goes on, and then we go on to the next issue. There was no, no time to actually sit and talk. The only, the only person I could sit and talk with was Jim, because you guys don't, probably don't know this, but we had this two-bedroom apartment, and 9.30 in the morning, boom, we're there with Scott. And we stay until 9.30 at night. And then we go home. And then rinse and wash and do it all over. 
you know, it was just work. You know, that adage of, you know, putting in the blood and sweat, that's it. We didn't go to movies. We didn't go to parties. We didn't go to games. We didn't go to concerts. We were boring. We just did. And then Brian knows, too, when we got into the studios, the studios are 24 hours. We got the guy, We got the boys that we called them, Campbell and them guys. We, we got them apartments right next to the studio. So they were in and out of the studios once they woke up. We lived in the studio. And that's all we did. We didn't do anything else. We just did comics. You know, so I, I wish, because this is my brush with greatness, you know, Byrne and Claremont, you know, they, they, to me, started it all. And I was just embellishing what they put in there. Um, but there just was no time. So now, before we wrap this episode up, first off, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time this evening or afternoon for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Good save. But before we go, how can people get a hold of you both on social media? And when does X-Men Legends drop in your local comic book shop or on Comixology? I'm just, you know, Will Spertaccio, um everywhere. And we were told that the book drops, I believe, January, February. So issues five and six of X-Men Legends. Yeah, and then for me, uh, the best thing is because my Facebook's maxed out. So I do Instagram most of the time. So it's uh, Brian Haverlin uh, official at Instagram. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Brian Haverlin. And I'm Will Spartaccio. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!